last week with uh, our relationship in the civil public arena, and uh, I know that there are a number of questions that I was stimulating last week, and hopefully we'll bring some answers and some conclusions to those questions. If you look at First Peter chapter 2, and I want you to just go back and read with me again, I want to start back at verse 11 and read down through verse 17. It's important for us to remember the context. And the context uh, basically is the description of who we are as Christians and then how shall we live. This is absolutely critical. How shall we live? We're going to make an impact on our culture. It's going to be through how we live. If we're going to earn the right to be heard, it's through how we live. Now remember these early Christians, no different than us, probably were more severely persecuted than you and I may experience. Terribly persecuted. And terribly accused. Remember they were called evildoers. That was their nickname. That was what they were known as in that culture. They were known as evildoers. And all manner of accusations were played out against them. And the hostility throughout all the Roman provinces where they were scattered continued to grow against them. So that background, that context, Peter urges them on. He encourages them in their faith by reminding them of the great promises of God and the great privileges of God. And then he transitions into verse 11. And he says, dear friends, or more literally, beloved, the beloved of God. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of being evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. That they may be saved as a result. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Remember, the, the Roman government under the emperor Nero was severely persecuting. It wasn't just their, the people in their communities. It was official, official government policy to persecute Christians. And he says to them, in that context, submit. Submit. Then he says, verse 15, For it is God's will, even in those dire, critical circumstances. He says, it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. I mean, think about it. You'd have to be a fool to not want Christians in your neighborhood. Think about it. Think about if you were walking down a dark street at night and you saw six men walking towards you and you were all alone, would you want to know those men were coming from a bar or from a Bible study? <laughs> Sometimes you've got to reduce it to the ridiculous, don't you? You'd have to be a fool not to want people who are advocates of peace and love and joy and fellowship and reconciliation and forgiveness and healing. You'd have to be a fool not to want those people in your culture. That's 
He says, by your good behavior, as you evidence these things, you are going to silence the ignorant talk of those foolish people. We have a tremendous opportunity to impact lives, don't we? By how we live. Would you agree? Yeah? Cool? I got two over there that agree with me. Verse 16, live as free men, because you are free, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. How many memorized the verse this week? Wonderful. I'm proud of you. And then we'll cover the rest at another time. Submit. Now, I want to talk to you tonight about why we're going to submit. What's our motive for submitting? What does Peter point us to in this passage? Why are we to submit to every authority instituted among men? Very simply, here it comes. For the Lord's sake. You see that? For the Lord's sake. Why do we submit? Why do we submit? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. First and foremost... For the Lord's sake. Now, what does that mean? For the Lord's sake. It means three things. I want to talk to you about three things. It means to submit to every authority instituted among men for the Lord's sake. First of all, it's an obedience issue. It's an obedience issue. This is obedience to Him. It is to obey Him. Because what? Submit yourselves is in... Well, it's in the mood of command in the Greek text. It's a command, so it's an obedience issue. Beloved, there is no authority except God. Would you agree? No, no, no real authority except God. And all the authorities that exist are established by whom? By God. We saw that in Romans chapter 13. Every authority, every authority has been established by God among men. Now, that may be hard to take, but that's the reality of it. So when you respond submissively to these authorities, you are doing it for the sake of the Lord who instituted those authorities. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of saying, yes, Lord. For your sake, I submit. I will obey. Jeremiah chapter 24. I want to read this passage to you. Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 4 through 7. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. Who sent the Jews into captivity in Babylon? God did. God did. He says, my eyes watch over them for their good. Isn't that wonderful? Remember, we are also aliens and strangers, aren't we? We are, in a very real sense, exiles now from the world. We're passing through. And who watches over us? God watches over us. For our good. Okay. And I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. What kind of hope do we have? The hope to be built up, not torn down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. Look at all that God does for His people. 
He exiles them. He gets them out of the world so that he can do all this marvelous stuff in them, doesn't he? He says, they will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with all their heart. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, in spite of your being strangers and exiles, he's saying, in effect, as long as you're there, as long as you're there, don't forget why you're there, and don't forget that my hand is upon you, and I will restore you to the place from which I have taken you. What's he saying? I'm in charge, and I'm in charge of you. That's a word to us. That's a word to us. I'm in charge. I'm sovereign. Therefore, we now what? Submit. We trust him because he's in charge. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows his plan for us, does he not? So it takes all the pressure off me. I can, okay, Lord, okay, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do exactly what you say because I know you're in charge. You are sovereign. Beloved, we do not accomplish in society. We do not accomplish in society anything for God when we violate what God has designed for us in terms of our conduct in society. If we run contrary to what He's already told us and how we're to live and act, and more particularly in this particular passage with respect to, what, submitting to authorities, if we think that we're going to rebel against the established authorities or we're going to do our own thing and we're going to thumb our nose at them and try to accomplish God's work, guess what's going to happen? We are not going to do it. God's work gets accomplished in obedience to His Word, does it not? Because if we try any other way, that's to stoop to the wrong methodology. How many have heard of this? The end justifies the means. The end does not justify the means. You can't say, well, that's, that's a good end, and so I'm going to use whatever means I can reach that end. Not if it's contrary to God's Word. Not if it's contrary to God's Word. The end can never be attained, for it is God who is in control. God works out His will for every good purpose, does He not? And our part is to what? Our part is to obey. Our part in this particular context is to respond submissively to the authority, and in so doing, we are responding to God's ordained rule. We are responding to His ordained rule. Let me read to you a quote from a man by the name of uh, Robert Culver. He wrote a book entitled A Biblical View of Civil Government. And he says, God alone has sovereign rights. Democratic theory is no less unscriptural than divine right monarchy. They're both the same in the sense of, of, of being uh, legitimate with respect to um, Scripture. He says, by whatever means men come to positions of rulership, by dynastic descent, aristocratic family connection, plutocratic material resources, or by democratic election, there is no power but of God. God, no matter how you got there, whether you were elected, whether you, however you got there, you're there because God has ordained that you be there. Now, for us, sometimes our puny little minds can hardly think... Yeah, but. But we have to bow to the Scripture. We have to bow to the Word of God. This is what God says. This is what the Word says. 
He says, furthermore, civil government is an instrument, not an end. That's always important to remember, isn't it? It's an instrument, not an end. Men are proximate ends, but only God is ultimate end. The state owns neither its citizens nor their properties, minds, bodies, or children. All of these belong to their creator, God, who has never given to the state rights of eminent domain. What's important for us to understand is that God owns and controls it all. Doesn't he? He owns it all. He controls it all. And what we want to do is recognize that very reality. He owns it all. He controls it all. No matter how out of control things may seem, they're still under his control. I don't know about you, but that gives me, I can, I can, gives me pause for relief. Oh, it's just chaotic. It's crazy. It's, well, yeah, it may look that way, but God is still in control of everything. Nothing gets outside of his control. So we want to recognize that. And we want to recognize that he has ordained government to keep the peace in society, and he has commanded us to submit to that government. It's very simple. We do not accomplish God's will by violating God's law, do we? We don't accomplish anything of God's will. By violating his law. There's a second reason. Second motive. If we are to submit. Not only do we submit out of obedience to the Lord. But we submit in imitation of the Lord. To imitate him. Imitate him. Look at uh, verses 21 through 23. In our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21 says. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Leaving you what? An example. He's an example to us. When they hurled their insults, verse 23, at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges what? Justly. Beloved Jesus, when he was on earth, was murdered Think about this. He was murdered by the coming together of two authorities, wasn't he? The Roman authority and the Jewish authority. Who established those authorities? God did. God did. God established them, and Jesus was murdered by them. Well, you talk about a paradox. You talk about a problem on the surface. That's a real difficulty. He lived his entire life under their unjust and unrighteous rule, didn't he? He never attacked the government. He never attacked the leaders. He never led a protest. He never led a civil demonstration, disobedience. He didn't even protest the unfairness of his own trial, did he? He didn't even protest the unfairness of his own trial. How many of us would go, but... But, but, you got it wrong. You don't understand. Let me defend myself. He didn't. Didn't defend himself. Is that the hardest thing in the world to do? Not defend yourself? Especially when you've been accused unjustly. But he's our example. He what? He submitted himself to those ruling authorities who would eventually kill him. Jesus spoke only of the kingdom of God. He called people to repentance. 
He called people to faith in Him. He called people to enter into the kingdom of God, didn't He? That was His fundamental mission. And through it all, He kept, him, he kept entrusting Himself, Peter says, to the God who judges justly. And He knew, He knew that God would do right. Why? Because He knew that God was just. And he knew that God was sovereign and the whole world was under his control. He knew that God's plan and purpose was going to be fulfilled. He had great confidence in that. We could apply that to every every area of our life, can't we? Not just the submission to these authorities. Jesus was no threat to the Roman government. He made no threats to the Roman government, though they accused him of it and were afraid that he would be a threat to the Romans. And indeed, that was the basis of the charge against him for which he was killed. A false accusation. Nonetheless, he never, ever defended himself in the face of it. So when Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, it means a couple of things. It means, first of all, we are to obey Him, and second of all, we are to imitate Him. We're to imitate Him. Now there's a third reason, and that is to honor Him or glorify Him. God is honored, beloved. Christ is honored when He is seen as the head or the source of virtuous, gracious, peaceable people. That honors him, doesn't it? How, think, of it? think of yourself as a parent, and your kids are viewed as gracious, virtuous, good kids. Does that not reflect honor and glory back to you as a parent? People come to you and say, wow, your kids are just great kids. And you go, <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus' own words were, and let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. God may get the glory. He may be honored as people look at our lives and they say, wow. So how we live and how we function and how we submit and obey for the Lord's sake means to what? To honor Him. John says it. John says it in his gospel, chapter 15, verse 8. He says, it is to my Father's glory that you bear what? Much fruit, showing yourselves to be whose disciples? My disciples. So people would see, people would look at you and say, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, that's what a Christian's all about. Oh, oh, I want to be one. And God gets the glory by how we function, how we live. And again, the context here is in submission to our authorities. Resistance to the governing authorities detracts from the glory of Christ. Let me say that again. Resistance to the governing authorities detracts from the glory of Christ. If you are a Christian and you're you're seen as hostile, angry, contentious, embittered, rebellious, beloved, that is not honoring to God. Would you agree? That is not, especially in the public arena. You and I have all seen on the television newscast, Christians are always cast in the worst light in demonstrations, aren't they? And you look at that TV screen and you just cringe. You go, oh man, I wish they wouldn't do that. But they're always cast in a horrible light. 
And most of the time, they are in a horrible light. Their attitudes are wrong. Tragic. To see us in peace, to see us as as gracious people, to see us as kind people, as virtuous, obedient, submissive, humble people, beloved, that honors Christ. That honors Christ. If we are the righteous, aren't aren't we the righteous? We're supposed to be, right? If we are the righteous, then if we rebel, what will the unrighteous feel that they should do? Well, the Christians are rebelling. Do you see what I'm I'm saying? Look at Romans chapter 13 again. Romans chapter 13. And look at verse 5. Now, if we are the virtuous of our society, if we are the righteous of our society, if we're the ones who serve God, the God that ordained government, if we're the ones who are not rebellious, then, beloved, how can we defy the very government institutions and authorities that God has ordained? You can't. Romans 13.5, he says this. Therefore, it is, and I want you to notice this, it is, what's the next word? Necessary. Necessary. It is necessary to submit to the authorities. It is necessary. That's a strong word. It is necessary to submit. The idea is it's not optional. It's not an option. It's not up to you. It's not up to you. Well, you know, I don't know if I'll submit or not. It's not an option. It's necessary. And it's necessary for two reasons. Look back up at verses 3 and 4. He says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what's right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. Now notice, he is God's servant and agent of what? Wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So he's saying it's necessary if you want to avoid wrath. Submit. Submit. You could be subject to the punishment of God, of a God-ordained institution, if you're not going to submit to those authorities. When the authorities do what they do to uphold law and order, they are ministers of God. They are ministers of God. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't abuse that sometimes. They do. This doesn't mean that they're personally necessarily Christians or that they're more moral than anybody else. It just simply means that their function within human society is to fulfill a God-ordained role of keeping order. And if a person obeys them, if a person does what's good, he has no reason to fear. But if he rebels, he has every reason to fear because of wrath. Because God has made those authorities ministers to punish those for God who violate the order which he has established. Now notice, 
It's necessary to submit. But not only because of wrath, what else does he say? What else does he say in that verse? For what? Because of conscience. Not only because of wrath, but because of conscience. What does that mean? Because it's right. Because it's right. That's the appeal to conscience. Because it's right to submit. So for the Lord's sake, we submit. We submit to obey Him. We submit to imitate Him. And we submit to honor Him. I heard an interview a number of years ago from a Russian pastor. And I'll never forget his answer to this pointed question. The question was, what do Russian Christians do to protest Russian oppression or Soviet oppression of their faith and the church? What do Russian Christians do? And this pastor said, if any Christian is ever arrested, he will be arrested for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing less. Nothing less. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not violating the law. Not rebelling. Not trying to overthrow the government. If any Russian Christian will be arrested, it will be for proclaiming the gospel and nothing less. Powerful. Powerful. You say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. What about, what about when we feel that the government is wrong? Right? What about when we feel the government is wrong? What if it oversteps its bounds? And what if it commands us to do what God commands us not to do? Or commands us not to do what God commands us to do. Right? What do we do in that situation? Great. We, the Bible gives us an answer. In that case, look back at Acts chapter 4 and 5. The book of Acts chapter 4 and 5. The apostles were commanded not to preach, weren't they? And what was Peter's response? Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. So when the government asks you to do the opposite of what God asks you to do, you have no choice but to do what God says. Do what God says, not the government. You do what God says. And then you bear the consequences. It may be punishment. If the government said, you're not allowed to preach, I would preach anyway. Would you? I would preach anyway, and I would suffer whatever consequences would come my way as a result of doing that. If they came to arrest me, I would not lie down in the dirt. I'd go with them. I'd accept the consequence. No passive resistance. No active resistance. I've chosen the way of God. And if they come to arrest me, great, I'll go with them. I'll comply. I'll embrace whatever God would have for me in that situation. Do we see the example of that in the Bible? Remember when they came to arrest Jesus? And Peter was going to, what, rescue him? Cut off the servant of the high priest's ear? Great rescue job. 
Jesus said, no, 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 we're not going to do it this way. The Apostle Paul. Do you realize that Paul never resisted arrest? You read through the book of Acts. He never resisted arrest. They put him in chains. They put him in stocks. Do you think they had to wrestle him into those chains or wrestle him into those stocks? No. Do you think that they had to have three guys carry him because he was laying limp in the dirt? No. Not at all. He went. He complied. He was imprisoned. He sang. God caused an earthquake. They had a revival. Paul walked out of jail. They started a church. Do you think that would have happened if he'd have, if he'd have resisted arrest? Do you think that would have happened if he'd have complied and not preached? No. He did what God called him to do, and God worked through that. And the very same thing that we saw that Jeremiah said, God was faithful to his word, and he brought life into the lives of those people who did not know God before that. You see, the weapons of Paul's warfare are not carnal. They were not carnal. They weren't worldly weapons of warfare. They weren't human manipulations. Paul didn't need to lie down in the dirt. He knew who he served. Do you know who you serve? He knew who he served, and he trusted in the power of God, not the manipulations of men. So many times, beloved, we trust in the manipulations of men. When our weapons are not carnal, worldly weapons. Paul didn't resort to those. You say, well, that's easy. That's easy. I can understand. Okay, if the government says do this, God says do this, I'm going to do what God says. Okay, I understand that. But, what about when the government allows things that we think are wrong? What do you do then? Well, the government may allow a lot of things that we think are wrong, and a lot of governments allow a lot more things than our government does. Isn't that true? Government allows a lot of things that we think are wrong, a lot of things that we disagree with. Spiritually, philosophically. Do you think the Roman government allowed some things the church in the first century thought were wrong? A huge long list of things. Child abuse, abortion, murder, abuse of women, slavery. They were all part of that culture. They were deeply ingrained things in that culture. The government allowed them. The government advocated those things. What did the church do? They have sit-ins, protests, marches, demonstrations. Do they disobey the laws? No, you have no record of that in the New Testament. No record whatsoever. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read verses 3 through 5. Paul says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul, how do you do that? Oh, we had a lay-in the other day. 
No. No, he didn't have a lay-in. He didn't have a protest march. What kind of weapons did he use? Look at verse 4. The weapons. The weapons. The word in the Greek means instruments of war. These are instruments of war. Beloved, this is spiritual warfare. We battle not against flesh and blood. We battle not against flesh and blood. And so many times, that's what we end up doing. We end up thinking we got to battle flesh and blood. When the warfare is not against flesh and blood, it is spiritual warfare. And our weapons are spiritual weapons. We're not warring against flesh and blood. We've got to remember that. So we can't use human means to fight on a spiritual level. We can't use the world's weapons. I read an article today uh, about, uh, in the 1800s, the um, Civil War era, and the fight that the abolitionists had to abolish slavery in America, and the extent to which even the church, even the church accommodated to slavery uh, during the time of Lincoln and the Civil War. And it was over a 30-year battle to abolish slavery in the formal sense in America. And they tried every possible means to abolish slavery. And they ran into wall after wall after wall, resistance after resistance after resistance. Until they began to preach the word and pray. They tried political alliances. They tried starting new political parties. They tried all sorts of uh, mailings. And until they began to preach the word and pray, then they began to see the tide turn. After 30 years of... We face the same kind of things today with abortion. There's a, you know, there's a bill coming up before our legislature. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, AB 22 in California to allow redefining marriage. Can you imagine that? And, and most Christians are, are totally clueless, and they're not even praying about it. Not even praying about it. Not... Not communicating with one another. Not saying, hey, you know, we need to be praying. We need to be getting together on these things. We need to be asking God to to move. You can't just depend upon me to do all this. It's got to rise up out of the body. All Christians must be informed. All Christians must be involved in the public arena. Our weapons... Beloved, are powerful weapons. You say they are? Preaching the word, prayer, those are powerful weapons? Yeah. How do I know? He says it in verse 4. They're not the weapons of the world. They have divine power. They are powered by God. I don't know of a greater power than you, than God's power. These weapons are powered by God. You say, well, how, how, how effective are they? Well, they're good. 
But we're, we're, our weapons are powerful for the dismantling, for the tearing down, for the destruction of those strongholds. Spiritual weapons. Things going on in our communities, our countries, our school systems, every place. Have you ever heard somebody argue in favor of abortion? Have you ever, it's, it's a pathetic argument. It's a pathetic argument when you hear it. But it's so strongly held. And you think, how can I get through to this person? How can we get through on that argument, on that issue? By using our spiritual weapons, which are powered by God. Which are powered by God. Now, what are the weapons of our warfare? What are the weapons of our warfare? Well, Ephesians chapter 6, right, talks about the spiritual armor. But I want to call your attention to one, one particular weapon. I want to focus on that, verse 17. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. We already know that the Word of God is powerful. It's active. It's alive. The sword of the Spirit. That's the only offensive weapon that Paul mentions in the whole armamentarium in that passage. All the rest are defensive protective. This is the only offensive one. The word of God, the sword of the Spirit. It's powerful. It gets right down where no one else can get. It speaks into the heart. The word of God. It's God-powered. It's God-breathed. It's alive. You can have all the human arguments you want. But without the word of God... You have no weaponry. You've got to have the Word of God. Don't diminish your, 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 your value and your understanding of the import and the power of the Word of God. I believe we all need to live it and to preach it with power and conviction. With power and conviction. Do you live God's word with power and conviction? And do you preach it with power and conviction? Do you tell other people, this is true? Do you let the word of God come from your lips? That's why we're memorizing scriptures. A number of you have already told me that this exercise of memorizing these verses has done marvels in your life. I believe that we ought to call the sinners to repent. I believe that we ought to be making disciples. Imagine, imagine, if every one of us, if every one of us evangelized just one person and made one disciple in a year, and in that process of making a disciple, we taught them to do the same thing, and then when they went out to do it, we got another one. And they evangelized somebody and discipled them. We got another evangel uh, evangelized them and discipled them, taught them. Do you know it would take but about a month to evangelize the world? It would take a month. If you understand the math. If you understand uh, exponential growth. It starts out real slow and then it just takes off. It would take you a month evangelize the world. Isn't that exciting? If we just did one a year. So you have to wait, what, a few more years? 
Is that so hard? Do you think we can make an impact in the world and the culture? What kind of impact? What kind of impact do we make? If every Christian made one disciple a year and taught that disciple how to make a disciple. And when they did that, they went and got another one. I believe, beloved, we ought to be out there witnessing, making disciples, warning people of the wrath to come. Warning people of the wrath to come. And we speak out the word of God. We speak out the word of God. You don't have to be preachy. You just speak out the word. You just speak the word. You just tell people what the truth is. Say, let me tell you what the truth is all about. Let the word of God do its work. People say to me, well, 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 you know, how do I witness my parents? Well, just take your Bible and ask them to read the verse. Don't you read it to them. You ask them to read it. Say, would you read that out loud to me? I must be born again. Now, what does that say? Would you read John chapter 3, verse 3 to me? <laughs> A man must be born again. Do you think that that person who you asked to read that verse is ever going to forget that? <laughs> Have you had to beat him over the head? No. He just said, would you do me a favor? Would you read this for me? You had to use the word of God. It's a lie. They'll never forget that. They, will, they won't sleep that night, I promise you. Those words, you must be born again, will come back to him, back to him, and back to him. Use the word of God. The way to solve society's difficulties and problems, beloved, is not to march, is not to, not to protest, not to overturn the government, not to <laughs> get a Christian president. We have one. <laughs> Goes to church every Sunday, waves his Bible. God bless him. Right? Make sure there's a photo op every Sunday. Turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. I urge then, first of all, ooh, first of all, you might want to underline that. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live, what? Peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It all starts with prayer. It all starts with prayer. Prayer is what brings that gospel that turns men's hearts. Prayer. Simply, our weapons are just two. The word and prayer. We have two weapons. We don't have many more. We don't need many more. These are really powerful weapons. We'll do anything but pray. We'll do anything but pray. We will march. But pray? I don't have time. We'll do anything but pray. Anything but connect to that spiritual dimension. 
when that's the only way we'll ever win. Prayer and the Word. Prayer and the Word. Prayer and the Word, beloved. Now remember, at the time of Peter's writing, when he wrote this letter, Nero was in power. He came to power in the year 54 A.D. at the age of 17. He was a maniacal homosexual, had all sorts of problems in his life. Murderous, to say the least. Fourteen years later, at the age of 31, he committed suicide. Nero. It was during his reign that Peter was martyred. And yet it was Peter who would die under Nero who said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. We're the examples. We're the light. If we are the light and the example and the righteous, what should we do? If we do anything other, the unrighteous will take their cue from us. So the command is simple. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your instruction to us. Thank you for your word, which is so clear and so true and so right. Thank you, Lord, for providing us with your spirit who opens our eyes. Thank you for the weapons you give us, spiritual weapons that we should first of all pray. Lord, burn that into our hearts and minds. Cause us to be people of prayer. Cause us to be people of your word. Cause us to be people, Lord, who have confidence in these two tremendous instruments of war. And help us, Lord, to remember that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, powers of darkness, Lord, burn these things into us. Strengthen us, O oh God. Cause us to be people who are really, truly a light and an example of virtue and righteousness. That indeed, by their, our very lives, we may silence, Lord, the accusations of foolish men. Lord, we commit our way to you. And again, I just trust, Father, that you would do a great work in us. Pour out your spirit in our lives. Stir us up. Cause us to be a people who, Lord, not only obey you and imitate you, but glorify you. You are the best. And I love you tonight. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's praise him and thank him for his goodness to us.